If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, and I am absolutely uh, thrilled to join in to this study of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is one of my favorite books in the Bible because it is indeed a guide for pilgrims. It's a guide that God gives us as pilgrims and aliens in this world to live. One of the things we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks is the fact that you and I, as followers of Christ, have a dual citizenship. Yes, we're all citizens of some country in this world, but when we come to know Jesus, we become citizens of a king and another kingdom that is our heavenly kingdom. And that changes the way we live. It changes how we function as believers. And what we want you to know is that 1 Peter is a book that helps us do that. Uh, Because of that pilgrim alien theme, we're actually going to put a poll up right now just for fun, just to keep you engaged, just something we're going to try this week. Uh, Right now, we're going to put up a poll on some of the most famous sci-fi slash alien movies of all time, and we want you to go and vote. So in just a few seconds, you're going to see that poll show up in uh, the Facebook feed. Go there and vote for your favorite alien uh, uh, sci-fi movie of all time. You'll see that there in just a few moments. We are thrilled that you're here. Again, if you're a guest, if you're just joining us today, we, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. Uh, in just a few minutes, when you see that poll, jump in and vote. Until that shows up, why don't you stand up with me as we honor the reading of God's Word in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. That's okay. I'll hit, next, I'll hit 12 next week. Uh, today, we're just going to do two verses together. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. Here it is. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, we're thankful that this is the holy, infallible, and errant word of God we stand on. And as we worship together today, we pray, Lord, that you and you alone would speak to us. God, please speak to us, shape us, challenge us so that we may know you better. And as you speak today, help us not just be hearers, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, right now that poll is up there. Your favorite alien or sci-fi movie, you've got three or four options there. You can all pick and the Star Wars and Star Trek people can duke it out on Facebook Live as to what's best. But we are thrilled that you're here. As I said a minute ago, the book of 1 Peter is a guide for pilgrims because in a real sense, what you've been given as a follower of Jesus is a new identity in which you are not, no longer looking around at your final resting place. You are a temporary resident in this world and as such, there's a difference in how you and I relate and connect to this world. On the one hand, we're not called as these temporary residents, as pilgrims and aliens, to totally withdraw. We're not called to form our own convents or wall ourselves up in a cave and separate from the world. But at the same time, we're not called to fully assimilate into the culture. We're not called to look just like the world. 
Well, if we're not called to withdraw and we're not called to assimilate, what we are called to do is to meaningfully engage the culture as a pilgrim and alien of Christ. We're called to be these ambassadors, this advanced team of another kingdom and another king. First Peter is a book written, of course, by the Apostle Peter who had a penchant for sticking his foot in his mouth. <laughs> Peter was always the one who spoke first and oftentimes much to his error, much to his chagrin, right? But he writes this letter as an apostle to believers that were scattered all over the Roman Empire and specifically in a province of the Roman Empire, modern-day Turkey. And so these regions that are mentioned here are uh, regions, geographical locations where Christians were intermingling with the culture and they were beginning to face persecution and difficulty. And so he writes this book to tell them who they are and how they're to engage And that's really what I want to see drive our time together today. If you're on Facebook Live watching, we're going to put a lot of my sermon notes here as well. So if they don't show up on the screen, look for them in the comments here. But the main idea that's really going to drive together our time together is this. Because God's love makes us pilgrims, live like it. Because the love of God transforms you into a pilgrim, into a representative of another king in another kingdom. Live your life like a pilgrim, like a temporary resident, like that advanced team who's here working ahead for our master's return. I want to show you three ways this morning that you can live like a pilgrim. Three ways that really define who we are. The first is this. You and I, number one, need to live like a valued pilgrim. We need to live first like a valued pilgrim. Now, this passage is kind of organized around the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this value really rests in the work of the Father. I want you to write three words down about the work of God's value He places on us. First word I want you to write down is the word humble. We have a humble value. Again, we're going to put these notes in Facebook Live, in the feed, be watching there, comment if you have questions. But the first thing that we have as a valued child of God, as a valued pilgrim, is a humble value. We see this when we're told at the end of verse 1, end of verse 2, that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, chosen means exactly what it says. It means that God chooses people for salvation. It means that all of us were on our way to destruction, on our way to hell under the wrath of God, and that God graciously chooses some out of that group going to hell and saves them. Now, some people believe this choice is based on God's foreknowledge in a sense that he looks ahead and sees what people will do and chooses them based on that. Other people believe God chooses people for salvation based on a mystery of his will, totally according to his plan. Now, I'm a proponent of the latter. I think God chooses people based totally on his gracious purpose, which is in itself a mystery. But whether you believe it's primarily foreknowledge or primarily his plan, what you have to ask is, is that fair? Is it fair that God selects people for salvation and leaves the rest to die? Well, remember, on the one hand, what is fair is that everyone faces God's wrath. 
What's fair is that every single person dies and goes to hell forever. Part of what you and I have as pilgrims then is a value that God confers on us by choosing us, by pulling us out of that train that's headed to damnation and saving us. And to be clear, though God chooses, though God initiates, we must respond. We're not robots. We have to turn from our sin and trust Him. But we can't miss the fact that God and His sovereignty is moving and working in this world to save us. This is different than the way most of the time we think about people being chosen. Uh, when you watch Netflix, for example, their new uh, show, Lost in Space, they've redone that whole series. Some of you may be familiar with that, Danger, Will Robinson. In that new series that Netflix reboots, uh, the Earth is dying. And in order to get a ticket on one of the ships that are leaving for this new planet they're moving to, you have to be of a certain intelligence. You have to have, make a certain contribution. And in the movie, in the show, I should say, Will Robinson, the son of this family, doesn't make a high enough score to warrant acceptance. And so his mom has to pay somebody and cheat and deceive people to get him on because he actually didn't make the grade. He didn't make the cut. But what I want you to know is that's not what God's choice is based on in his grace. He doesn't choose us based on the contribution we can make or how smart we are or how powerful we are or how much we could bring to the table. His salvation is of pure grace alone. Now here's why that's so important. Because God chooses people for salvation not based on their merits, you and I have no room for pride. The humble value that we have as pilgrims is not one that we can pridefully strut around with. I can't pridefully walk over to someone else and say, hey, I've figured out this salvation. Why haven't you? Hey, I I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Get it together. What's wrong with you? No, there's nothing about you and me that makes us better than someone down the street who doesn't know Jesus. You and I just happen to be the recipients of God's merciful grace and kindness. This is incredibly important, church, because what we have is a kind of humble compassion for people that are around us because we've received humble compassion. Part of living like a valued pilgrim is a humility that says, I don't have anything I have because of my ability or intelligence, or worth. I have what I have because God has graciously saved me. But not only do we have a humble value, we also have a secure value. We have a secure value. It says that he chose us, look back at verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now that word foreknowledge speaks to God's plans and purposes. And what it emphasizes is that God... And his plan and purpose makes the first move towards you and me. God, in other words, initiates forgiveness and mercy and grace. And this is critical for your life because I don't want any of you to think that grace and mercy is God aloofly sitting in heaven, yawning, watching the world go by, hoping we figure it out and come to him. That's not grace. The biblical view of grace is that God is not passively standing by with his arms crossed. It's that God as a father is running after his children. He initiates mercy and grace. 
I so often come back to the prodigal son because it's so formative for my view of God. And I think that's why Jesus told it. But there's that moment when the prodigal son returns. And the Bible says that the father saw him a long way off and ran to meet him. Now the son still repented. He still responded. But the father initiates. He runs to meet his son. And that's what God has done for you and for me. What this means is if God is the one that initiates salvation with us, that means you and I have not just any kind of value placed on us, but we have a secure value that we cannot lose. One of the reasons we believe we can't lose our salvation is because God is the one who reaches out to us in salvation. Salvation is not just me and you grabbing up to God and holding His hand. Salvation is God reaching down to us and grabbing a hold of our hand. And never letting go. I don't know about you, but that's really good news in a season where it feels like everything's been turned upside down. It feels like everything right now has been turned upside down, hasn't it? Is there really anything we can count on in this life? Sports have been canceled. The financial markets have gone through turmoil. Our medical system seems to be just topsy-turvy right now with all the things that are going on. Every single hour, it feels like there's a new piece of information that undoes what was said previously or said the day before. It just feels like there's nothing you can count on right now. But part of living like a pilgrim, part of being a representative of another king and another kingdom is having a settled security that comes from knowing that the value Jesus has placed on me, the value the Father has placed on me, will never, ever leave me. God's value in your life will never leave you or forsake you. But thirdly and finally, not only do we have a humble value and a secure value, we also have a satisfying value. This passage says that we've been chosen according to the knowledge of God. Notice this phrase, the Father. The Father. God, the Father, is the one who's initiating with us. It's it's significant that God calls himself Father, isn't it? Because what it emphasizes is that, as I mentioned a moment ago, God is not some aloof dad who's watching the world go by. The word father emphasizes that God takes a joyful interest in you and in me. I remember the first time I held each of my kids, Seth and Noah and Paige, the first time I held them in my arms and how my eyes welled up with tears of joy as I held those little ones in my arms. As I've grown as a parent, (laughs) they've cost me a lot of money, a lot of time, sometimes a lot of sleepless nights. Sometimes a lot of grief and sorrow. But my children that God has placed in my arms immediately when they came into existence had my unconditional love and care. Why? They had that kind of love and care because they were mine. You see, there was an intimate, close, personal value I placed because they are my kids. That's the way God looks at you. That's what you have, Christian. That's what you have, believer. That's what you have, pilgrim. You have an intimate value God has placed on you. What that is meant to do for us is it's meant to well up within us a satisfaction, a resting in the value God's placed to me that crowds out my desire for other things. 
God's plan in saving us and placing this kind of satisfying value on us means that when other things are dangled in front of me, I say, I've got what I need in my Savior. I don't need that. I mean, imagine you get a knock on the door and there's a vacuum, vacuum cleaner salesman there and he's trying to sell you on this new vacuum and tell you all the different ways that his new vacuum can change your life. And he demonstrates this and shows it to you and has pamphlets and shows you the 10 easy payments you have to make to get this. But at the end of the presentation, all that he tries to show you, you say, you know, I appreciate you coming by today, but I've got this vacuum that I've had for years that really does the job for me. It does everything I need. And so I'm just going to say, no, I don't need this new vacuum. What I have now is enough for me. What that picture paints for us is the picture of what God's satisfying value does in our lives. He so anchors himself, he so anchors our soul in him that when other vacuum cleaners of life are presented to us, when other temptations of power or money or sex or position come and are dangled in front of us to turn our attention away, we say, I've got what I need. I have everything I need and the satisfying value God has given me. A pilgrim is someone who walks around this world satisfied, fulfilled because of the value God's placed on them. You and I are called first to live like a valued pilgrim because that's exactly what we are. The Father has chosen us according to his foreknowledge and grace. But secondly, the second major point I want you to see here is not only should we live like a valued pilgrim, we should live like a dependent pilgrim dependent pilgrim. Now this is where God moves from talking about the Father. Peter moves from talking about the Father to talking about the work of the Spirit. Look back at your Bibles again at verse 2. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And this is important because here we're moving to the work of the Holy Spirit who is it his job is to accomplish the will of the Father. He's the means by which God's plans and purposes come into reality. And so what this emphasizes first is that you and I have, write this down, a dependent start. Write that down if you're taking notes. You and I have dependency on God because we have a dependent start. The Spirit is the one who shows me that I need Jesus. He shows me my sin. He shows me my need for Christ. And if you know Jesus today, you know him because the Holy Spirit has made it clear to you that you need him. Speaking of salesmen, a few months ago, Shelly and I decided to invest in a water filtration system for our house, water softener, water filtration. And so we made an appointment online for somebody to come out and test our water. But little did we know that this guy was going to do more than test our water. He was going to try to convince us right there on the spot to invest in the system. And so he came by and he had all these tests where he would get some of our water and he would show us uh, the deficiencies with our water and and how it was too hard and how it was filled with certain things that weren't going to be the best for us. And after showing us all of those things, after showing us all of the problems we have with our water, that he then opened his nice, beautiful brochure and showed us what his system could accomplish for us. This is what the Holy Spirit does in your life and in my life. He exposes the deficiencies of our sin. He exposes the need we have for a Savior. And as he does this, he shows us in beautiful fashion 
how we can know Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Now, please don't misunderstand me. If you know Jesus, it's because somebody verbally opened their mouth and told you the gospel, told you about Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, your sin, your need to repent and trust him. But what we're saying is the Spirit is the one working behind the scenes. He's the one working behind that person sharing with you to show you at a spiritual level your need for Jesus. What this means is we are dependent on God at the start, especially as we share the gospel with people who are lost. Here's the application. If you have somebody in your life who is lost, who you want to see come to know Jesus as Savior, You are not just praying for that person. You are praying for God to move in that person's life. Yes, pray for that person. Pray that they would come to their senses. But never forget that it's the Spirit, the Spirit, who exposes our sin and our need for Christ. And what we're begging the God of heaven to do in the lives of our loved ones and friends and co-workers who don't know Jesus is we're begging Him through the work of his spirit to open their eyes to see the seriousness and problem of their sin and the beauty of our Savior. This is especially important for the parents I talk to all the time. All the time I talk to parents who raise their kids in church and who now many of those same kids who were raised in church are not walking with the Lord. I know that's a burden for many of our families here specifically at First Baptist. And parents, I want to remind you of something. There is no heart God cannot reach. Don't you ever give up praying for those lost kids. Don't you ever give up praying for those wayward adults. Don't you ever lose hope that God can save them. Because what you're praying for, parent, is not just that they would come to their senses or that they would get a job or they would get out of the mess that they're in but you're praying for the Spirit, the Spirit of God to convict their hearts. Pray that, parents. Don't give up. We live like dependent pilgrims when as pilgrims of another king and another kingdom, we pray for God's Spirit to work in people's lives. But we don't just have a dependent start. We also have a dependent goal. Look back at this passage Dependent goal. Write that down. Look, it says that we have been saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That word sanctify means to make holy, to make perfect, to consecrate, to set us apart. This is the reality that because you, when you become a Christian, you don't sprout wings and grow a halo. You don't become perfect overnight. Even when the Spirit shows you your need for Christ and you pray and receive Christ as Savior and Lord, you still have a sin struggle going on in your life. But the Spirit is the one. He's the power in your life that frees you from the power and the penalty of sin. He's the one who gives you the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. His goal, his ultimate goal is to shape and form us to go back to our original design. Your original design as an image bearer of God was to be his representative. We were to represent him. We were to live as supporting characters to God who is the main character. And what the Spirit does is he works in a process in you that takes you back to your supporting character role. 
he takes you back to your original factory settings. Remember several years ago, I had a problem with a computer. And the problem was so severe, so serious, that I literally had to have somebody wipe my entire computer clean and take it back just to the basic hard drive to get rid of the virus and the problems that were there. And so after the work was done, when I got my computer back, it was like I got it and it had just come out of the box. This is what Jesus does in our lives through his work in the Spirit. The Spirit is working us in a process to take us back to as if we just came out of the box. This is important for your life because as a pilgrim, living your life dependent on God's goal for you means that you're not living your life primarily for your dreams or your aspirations or your goals. That you and I are living our lives dependent on God's dreams, God's aspirations, God's goals for us. This is incredibly important for the parents listening to this. Parents, one of our jobs is to guide our children, to help them figure out what they're supposed to do with their lives. And one of the ways we do that, moms and dads, is by framing the right questions for our kids. One of the ways we help our children follow hard after Jesus is by helping them answer this question. What does God want you to do with your life? What has God made you for? Now, I know that may sound like a really basic question, parents, but let me tell you why that's so important. Your child and my children, all of our kids are being pumped with daily that the answer to fulfillment is life is them figuring out what their dreams are and living those out. And while we want them to live and work hard and find a calling and all those things, what we're doing when we ask the right questions is we're moving them from looking within for those answers. And we're moving them to look above for those answers. So that they would put their yes on the table and say, God, whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. God, whatever you want for my life, I'll do it. Your goals, your aspirations, your dreams for my life, that's what I want to live. That's what it looks, looks like to be a pilgrim who's a parent. You're moving your child away from looking within for life's answers to looking above. We're dependent pilgrims when we are dependent on God for our start and we are dependent on Him for our goal. But thirdly and finally, we not only live like dependent pilgrims, we're also called to live like purposeful pilgrims. Purposeful pilgrims. The last section in this passage moves us to thinking about not just the work of the Father and the work of the Spirit, but here we're looking at the work of the Son. This is where we move to talking about Jesus. So it's the Father who graciously chooses and pulls us out of danger. It's the Spirit who applies that work to our lives, who shows us our need and helps us overcome once we become believers. But it's the Son, it's Jesus, who's the ultimate goal. Jesus is the hero. He's the victor who the Spirit is bringing to bear in our lives. There are two things I want you to write down about living like a purposeful pilgrim. The first is this, write this down. We're to live for the purpose of faith. We're to live for the purpose of faith. Look back in your Bibles, verse 2. 
He says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Here it is, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. That word obedient means surrendered or submitted to. And what God calls us to surrender to is to a life of faith. We're called to live our lives in repentance of our sin and faith and trust of our Savior. And this is critical because I know from my life, I used to think repentance and faith was an isolated experience. Yeah, when I was seven, I turned from my sin and I trusted Jesus. And now I kind of live my life and I do my own thing. But please don't forget, church, that repentance and faith are not just how we come to know Jesus. Repentance and faith are how we continue to grow in Christ. See, because every day I'm confronted with sin in my life. And I'm called to turn from that sin, turn from trusting that that sin is better, and to trust that Jesus is better. In other words, part of living like a purposeful pilgrim is realizing that I never graduate from repentance and faith. I never move on from basic trust that Jesus is better. Now to be sure that principle, that reality begins to intersect into other parts of my life, into more complex problems and more difficult situations. But that basic reality doesn't change. I remember the terrifying moment I had when I got to pre-calculus that I hadn't paid attention in algebra. <laughs> I know we've got some math teachers in the room, uh, but if you don't learn the basic skills of math, you know what happens? It builds on itself, and if you don't get those basic things down, you get really confused down the road. So you have to relearn some things. Those basic skills and principles that I didn't learn really caught up with me as I began to get in more advanced math in school. In the same way, what I want you to know is the basics of repentance and faith never change. They're the basic fundamental building blocks of a Christian life. And if you start trying to live your life in more difficult problems, more complex situations, and you've not got that baseline of repentance and faith down, you will struggle. Repentance and faith is something God calls us to daily. Never forget this, church. Every day, you're trusting in something. Every single day, you are trusting that something is real and good and better for you. Behind every action is you trusting either that sin is better, which leads you to those words you shouldn't have spoken, which leads you to looking at those things on the internet you shouldn't look at, or you're believing that Jesus is better, which leads you to righteousness and holiness and saying no to sin, not because just it's bad for you, but because Jesus is better. Oh, church, one of my greatest prayers for you, especially in this season, is that you and I would remember that it's not just that Jesus is right, but that Jesus is better, that he's good, he's beautiful, and what he offers me and his righteousness and holiness is far greater than anything sin would ever dangle in front of me. Finally, not only do we have a purpose of faith, write this down, we also have a purpose of freedom. 
not only do we have a purpose of faith, we have a purpose of freedom. Second part of this passage says that we're to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when Peter mentions this sprinkling idea, he's taking us back in time to Mount Sinai, to the Old Testament, where Moses came from the mountain, had the Ten Commandments, and he set up an altar on the one hand, and he put the people on the other. He sacrificed that animal, and Moses did something very interesting in the Old Testament. He sprinkled half the blood on the altar, and he sprinkled the other half of the blood on the people, on the people. What was he doing? Well, when he was sprinkling the blood on the altar, he was satisfying the wrath of God, the fact that the people could not keep the Ten Commandments themselves. But when he sprinkled the blood on the people, he was covering their sin. He was inviting them into covenant relationship so that that blood became a bridge between God and the people. It connected them. And what Peter's saying is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. His blood satisfies the wrath of God. It satisfies and stays God's wrathful hand of justice towards our sin. But at the same time, that same blood covers us, brings us into right standing with God so that we can know Him in covenantal relationship. The reason that's so important for your life is that gives you freedom from sin's power and sin's penalty. And one day, it'll give you freedom from the very presence of sin itself. The blood of Jesus frees us from being enslaved to sin, but it also frees us from the effects of sin. One of the greatest effects of sin I see in our culture today is the feelings of guilt and shame that enslave so many believers. As a pastor through the years, I've had the great privilege of praying with and encouraging people that were dealing with shame. You see, shame is embarrassment for who you are. Guilt is embarrassment for what you've done. Shame is embarrassment that you don't measure up to the standard you think you should have or this position others think you should be in. So many believers are knocked out of effective service because they live lives ridden with guilt and with shame. But can I tell you the good news today? The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus in your life as a pilgrim means you don't have to live in guilt and shame. You're freed from all these verdicts other people have labeled you with or spoken into your life. You're freed from these self-imposed feelings of failure and embarrassment that you have. You're freed from the power of sin and its penalty in your life to live your life in joyful submission to God. It reminds me of a story Tim Keller told about the Frankenstein monster one time. All of you are familiar with Frankenstein, the story of Frankenstein. It's about a guy who pieces together this monster and through medical means he brings this dead cadaver to life. And what makes the Frankenstein monster particularly grotesque is that it's pieced together with pieces of dead people. And then the story of the Frankenstein monster, at one point it leaves the castle, it leaves its creator and, and runs out into the woods being chased by soldiers who were trying to kill it. And in the story, the Frankenstein monster comes upon a cottage 
And just as he's walking up, he looks into the window of this cottage to see an old blind man praying. And the man's praying this, Oh God, would you please bring somebody in my life to help me in my terrible loneliness? And just as the man finishes praying that, the Frankenstein monster bursts in and closes the door to, to hide from the soldiers that are looking for him. And of course, he can't speak. He's grunting and snarling. And the blind man realizes that, that this guy can't speak. And so he says, hey, I, I can't see. You can't speak. We, we should be friends. We should help each other. So that's what happens. Over the next several scenes in this story, the blind man takes care of this monster. He feeds him. He clothes him. He sings to him. He teaches him to say words like food. What's powerful in the story is that you can begin to see the monster humanize under the love of this old, old, lonely, blind man. Well, later in the story, the soldiers catch up and they attack the cottage. They burn it down and the, sold, the, the Frankenstein monster runs off into the woods, leaving the old man behind alone and blind. What I love about that story is that you and I are just like that Frankenstein monster. We're stitched together in our lives before we meet Jesus by what other people have said about us. What our parents thought, our teachers thought, our friends thought, our coaches thought. All these things people have said about us through the years. It's like we're this grotesque monster that's been pieced together by all these verdicts in our lives. But when we meet Jesus, he speaks a verdict over us that overturns all the other verdicts in our lives. Because through Christ's accepting love, he says, you're my child. I love you. And if the infinite God who knows you better than anyone else knows you is not ashamed of you, then you don't need to be ashamed of you. Doesn't mean we treat our sin as if it's no big deal. We still fight against our sin. We still experience conviction. We still war against it. But we do so from a position of God's approval, not for his approval. Pilgrim, you have been given a purpose of freedom through the sprinkled blood of Jesus that means you've been freed from shame and guilt and the power of sin. As we move into this time of response and as the band begins to play, there may be some of you here today who've never experienced that freedom. There may be some of you here today who would like to respond. There's some of you that have, may have a prayer need, may have more questions, we've got a phone number on the screen that you can respond to. But I want to talk just for a moment to some of you who uh, may have never experienced the acceptance and freedom of Christ. You see, experiencing this love that overturns all the other verdicts in your life starts by looking in the mirror. The mirror of God's law that he holds up in front of all of us that shows us that we are those Monsters stitched together by what others have said about us. Experiencing God's love starts by recognizing that you are a sinner, that you are broken, that you've lied, you've stolen, 
you've looked at other people with pride and lust, you've disobeyed your parents, that you've done all those things and more because you're trying to fix something inside of you you can't fix. And the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to fix it. You can't fix it. Jesus came to fix you. Because what Jesus Christ did for you is he lived a perfect life. He died on a cruel cross. And when he died on that cross, he took all those verdicts, all that sin, all that brokenness on himself. And he took the punishment that you and I should have been given. And when Jesus rose again on the third day, he looked at you and I from that mirror, not of judgment and condemnation, but from a mirror of grace to say, I can forgive you. I can restore you to what I made you to be we have to respond. We have to respond in repentance of our sin. That is turning from our sin and trusting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If there's some of you watching today that have never experienced that kind of mercy and grace, I'd like you to pray with me now. If that's you today and you'd like to experience the grace and mercy of God, you can pray something like this. Father God, I'm coming before you acknowledging that I'm a sinner. God, I've looked in the mirror and I confess that I've been prideful, that I've lusted, that I've lied, and I've done more. And God, I confess that I deserve your punishment and wrath because of those things. But God, right now, I turn from those things and I trust Jesus. I believe, Lord, that you died in my place, taking my penalty, and that you rose again on the third day to forgive me. Right now, I give you my life and my heart, Lord Jesus. I pray this in your name.